it's me, your mail-in ballot. I know you need to fill me out. It's very important that you fill me out, and it's very important that you mail me or drop me off at a drop-off box, etc. And, you know, if you want to make the experience of voting more fun, how about while you're filling in the little bubbles, you listen to an episode of this podcast. Before we continue my first ever journey through the Harry Potter series, just a few quick announcements. First, Potterless Rewind launches now. Over this weekend, Potterless turned four years old, which is ridiculous. And to celebrate this four-year anniversary of the podcast, we are listening to all of the book episodes of Potterless one week at a time and then having an online book club to talk about them. These discussions will take place every Sunday on social media using the hashtag, hashtag Potterless Rewind, and we will be talking about a couple episodes at a time. So this Sunday, October 25th, we will be talking about episodes one through seven of Potterless. Over the course of this week, just find some time, listen to those first seven episodes, and then we will talk about them and have a fun time looking at how different things were back then versus how they are now. I'm very excited to hear what you all have to say about these episodes, and again, that hashtag is hashtag Potterless Rewind. Also, since today's episode and the next few will cover something that J.K. Rowling had a hand in, I will be donating a portion of the ad money on this episode to a trans rights charity. So the charity I'll be supporting for these Fantastic Beasts book episodes is the Sylvia Rivera Law Project. They work to guarantee that all people are free to self-determine gender identity and expression regardless of income or race and without facing harassment, discrimination, or violence. If you want to learn more about this organization, you can go to srlp.org. And also, I'd like to thank people that are helping this show going, and especially I'd like to thank our newest patrons over at our team at patreon.com slash Potterless. So shout out to Lacey Dream, Tane Maria Bryant, Francesca Mengoni, Imaginary Kama, Megan Nip, Carolina Weissenin, Zachary Demarest, Tyler Grubbs, and Katie Knoll. And a huge shout out to our newest producer level patron, Samantha McNamara. They join the ranks of Vicky, Christine, Aaron, Kalau, Marchismo, Samantha, Juan, Rosemary, Marie, Lisa, Romina, Audra, Elnor, Nikita, Rachel, Zachary, Alex, John, Noel, Claire, Rory, Veronica, Lada, Noah, Tracy, Colleen, Jennifer, Justin, Jacob, Maya, Mark, Polly, Zina, Harlan, Noelia, Nikki, Kine, Amanda, Kafir, Sarah, Marta, Maya, Floor, Georgia, Skyla, Adele, Professor, Threat, Ellie, Michael, Kelly, Carrie, Connie, Jen, Nedry, Will, Marcos, Marik, Ashton, Brittany, Phelan, The Meadows Family, Ginny, Heather, Kevin, Lori, Jarl, Pita, Janin, Callahan, Leah, Melissa, Bella, Melanie, Becca, Reese, Adam, Joseph, Lily's mom, Madison, Tonk, Sabrina, Sophia, Farzan, Melanie, Matt, Okamahime, Boney Pony, Kelsey, Rike, Taylor, Megan, Riley, Laurel, Rossan, Erica, Miranda, Landon, Kendra, Natanya, Yogan, Darcy, Sandra, Craig, Lior, Demi, Michelle, Callista, Jennifer, Henrique, Jeremy, Delkis, Katrina, Jerica, Casey, Megan, Sot, Jack, Sophia, Dane, Kirsty, Robin, Chick, Mermaid, Daddykins, Alaria, Lori, Gregory, Stan, Kaka, Nina, Ribbon, Brittany, Ashley, Ravenclaw, Gavin, Jack, Serenity, Emily, Haley, Sabrina, Sean, Jenna, Laura, Mazeltov, Eileen, Annette, Kirsten, Hufflepuff, Brett, Hunter, Mary, Artemis, Trans People are People, Steamed Nuggets, and Kurt Potter, who never take out their phone trying to take a picture of something and then leave their phone on selfie mode so that when you try to take the photo, it's, ah, uh, here's my face. If you want to be like one of these amazing patrons and get access to bonus episodes, director's commentary, exclusive merchandise, live streams, and more, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Potterless. But without further ado, let's get into episode 147 of Potterless, covering the first part of the Fantastic Beasts and where to find them spinoff book, guest starring Caleb Denacor. Hello, Internet, and welcome back to another episode of Potterless, the tale of a 28-year-old man who never read the Harry Potter series as a kid. He read them as an adult, and now he's reading more books in there mediocre. My name is Mike Schubert, and I'm joined today by someone who was formerly a member of Rooster Teeth and Achievement Hunter and is now currently a member of the United States National Ultimate Team. It's Caleb Denacor. Caleb, how's it going? Yeah, it's going pretty good. Just uh, enjoying a nice afternoon. Yeah, good. Yeah, I'm. I'm. nothing bad has really happened yet. 
at one fifteen. So it's a good it's a good day. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you know, with the last couple of months, getting halfway through a day without anything that doesn't like shock or completely discourage me. It's a good day. Yeah. Like it's small victories. <laughs> Nothing bad has happened that I know of. The rug is still under my feet. I'm anticipating it to get swept under eventually, but so far, so good. So today we're going to be talking about Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the book written by quote unquote Newt Scamander, but really J.K. Rowling, everyone's favorite person. You mean she who must not be named? <laughs> yeah. I do love that that is kind of surfaced around, which, you know, I'm here for it. So my best friend Johnny recommended you as a perfect guest for this episode because I believe in college you were a zoology major. Is that correct? So originally I did drop out of college, but uh, originally it was zoology. Working out well. You're doing (laughs) just fine. (laughs) Yeah, turns out education wasn't necessary for me. Who would have thought? Uh, Yeah, I was originally a zoology major. I grew up just a huge lover of basically all animals. Uh, One of my all-time idols in the world is Steve Irwin. Oh, nice. Animal Planet was like my go-to channel as a kid. I had to watch every show, especially Crocodile Hunter. Uh, So like animals and I just like, it's, it's a thing. I love reptiles. Those are my favorite categories specifically saltwater crocodiles i think they're just so cool so like newt's commander is like to me like the steve Irwin of the magical world so i'm a big fan of him awesome that's really great my wife is huge into jane goodall and has been watching multiple jane goodall documentaries of late so i can totally understand but yeah i'm excited to get your area of expertise about zoology was it zoology that made you drop out (laughs) or Like, was was it so frustrating that you were like, I can't do school. I can't bear to learn more about animals. The, uh, the love for animals stayed, but it's just one of those things that like, I think I grew up in an environment where it's like, this is the path you have to take to find success. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that that wasn't the path that I needed. Like, maybe I should have gone to a smaller school. I went to a pretty large university with classes of 400 people. That wasn't a good fit for me. Yeah, it wasn't my thing to sit down and read a textbook, which is hilarious because today we're talking about how we sat down and read a textbook. (laughs) Thankfully, it's a very short and illustrated textbook, depending on what version you have. So I have two versions of this. I have the original one where there's Harry and Ron's notes in it, which is very fun. And then I have the newer one that is way less fun but they added a few more things, but is very much, I now recognize, geared because they were making Fantastic Beasts into a movie franchise, and it was heavily refreshed and remodeled to accommodate this change. But you also have the illustrated version, right? Yep. So I, which is the second one you spoke about just illustrated. So lots of pretty pictures per page. Sweet. I'm excited to see uh, any sort of graphical insight that you have for this audio medium. Um, But this is my second time reading it. I did a live show at a leaky con a while back with Tiana Benjamin, who played Angelina Johnson in the movies. And I did a yearbook version of this where I gave all of the creatures superlatives. So those will be scattered throughout my notes as well. But going through the two versions, the one with Harry and Ron's notes is actually very fun because their notes are really silly and they actually make jokes, whereas the rest of it just isn't funny. And as you mentioned, you're reading a textbook. So I don't know why in the version two they decided, you know, that fun thing we had going on. Let's make sure we get rid of the fun element. See, and I actually read that one originally years ago and then I this is the first time I've actually read the textbook new version. And what were your thoughts going from one to the other? It was kind of sad. I, I had... Again, yeah, you lost the humor. You lost the fun of it. But I did have at least the illustrated version, which was nice because like the pictures kind of go with it. And like some of the pictures don't like actually line up to what's being described necessarily. Uh. And so it's kind of like a different thing. And then the sizing is way off. Like some of the creatures are like depicted 10 times larger than they should be because there's like a small building in the picture too. And you're like, it says it's like a 15 foot dragon, but it's bigger than a house by far. (laughs) It's clearly just a very small house. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> so let's get into this book, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, or Remarkable Creatures in Their Locations, or Amazing Animals in Areas They Might Be, or Outstanding Beings and Their Whereabouts, or Impressive Critters and Habitat Locations. We begin with the foreword, which in the original one was by Dumbledore and kind of just explained the whole Lumos charity thing. These books are always very confusing where they try to establish the canon of if these are books in the wizarding world, but they're also books in the real world, but they're also books for muggles and it makes my brain hurt. But now in the new updated version, there's a foreword from Newt Scamander that's like, hello, I previously wasn't important, but now there's five movies about me. So let me explain who I am. So one quick note about that. And I was confused reading this. I didn't have the old one on hand. They mentioned in the foreword that originally Dumbledore in 2001 wrote it. So the original book in 2001, Dumbledore supposedly wrote the foreword, but Dumbledore died in 1997. (laughs) And so you talked a lot about the importance of getting into the headmaster's office and talking to dead Dumbledore's portrait. Yep. Was it Mm -hmm. actually Dumbledore's portrait that wrote the foreword? I like this theory. I like it. Yeah. I like, I couldn't get past that. I was like, but... So is it because, the, I, I don't know, I just like, I couldn't get past that date of 2001. It made no sense to me at all. Hey, this is Editing Mike here. Just to further clarify the point that Caleb is getting at, this first edition of the spinoff book was released in 2001. And if you look at the actual book, the first page with all the publishing information says 2001. Now, the foreword doesn't explicitly say, hi, I'm Dumbledore and I wrote this in 2001. But if you believe this first page to be within the canon, it does raise some questions of, is this foreword really old or was it written after Dumbledore's death? Anyway, back to the podcast. You know, if we've learned anything about J.K. Rowling when she adds stuff beyond the original book series is that time just throws out the window because McGonagall is just every age now <laughs> and she just exists in all times. <laughs> Perfect. Newt Scamander actually has a time turner and that's how it worked. Ah, there it is. There it is. There it is. So in this new Newt Scamander forward, there's this part of it where he says, oh, documents will soon become declassified and you can learn more, which... I guess is like, oh, what are these documents? It's the script to an underwhelming film franchise. Uh, He goes on to correct claims that Rita Skeeter made about him, saying that he was posing as a magizoologist. Sure, this slam piece book called Man or Monster, The Truth About Newt's Commander, which in my mind is the equivalent of the J. Jonah Jameson Daily Bugle Spider-Man thing that's a (laughs) Spider-Man friend or menace. (laughs) One of the things in the forward that actually got to me, though, Acronyms. Oh, yeah. The acronyms for both governing bodies. One is MOM and one is MACUSA. Yep. I'm disappointed that no one ever actually refers to the Ministry of Magic as MOM. And that's not something that is like normal in canon because come on, governing body being your parent, it should happen. I think so for sure. But even worse is MACUSA. Why is there an A? Oh, MACUSA is garbage. MACUSA is garbage. (laughs) But isn't it the magical M Congress C? of the United States of America. There's an extra A in the acronym, so it should actually be USA. Yeah, or it should be like a small A, like big M, lowercase a, CUSA. It was very much designed in a way where they wanted the acronym first, and then they decided to fill it in later. But it also sounds like Medusa, so it sounds like a villain. Like, it feels like this should be Hydra, but it's the good guys in America? I don't know. It's very silly. But yeah, the mom thing was confusing to me because as you keep going through this book, every time it lists a creature, it has their M-O-M classification, which says how dangerous they are. And every time I see M-O-M classification, I'm like, what is the M-O-M? <laughs> oh, right. It's the Ministry of Magic. Because across seven books, they never say this once. So it's so strange that I guess J.K. Rowling thought of it seven books later. Oh, <laughs> it could be mom. 
But another interesting thing that they explain in this new foreword is that in the first edition, the older one, he couldn't write about American beasts due to Makusa's statute of secrecy, which I love the retconning here of JK where I guess she just didn't care about America before. And then now it's like, oh shit, the whole movie's about America. Let me just write in some American beasts so it makes sense. Yeah, I, I always wonder about that and like the level of secrecy they have in the US in this era versus in Britain, but like, why would he not be able to make a textbook specifically about it? Like it's for educational purposes for everybody else. Like that makes no sense. Yeah. Releasing it to muggles, probably problematic, but like actually putting in the original print edition for wizards shouldn't have been an issue because I think it's important that if people were vacationing to understand what these beasts are if they are to encounter them. I think the only thing that makes it make sense is that the American organization would not want an accurate textbook in circulation. That feels incredibly <laughs> that feels incredibly on brand for our wonderful country. So that's the only element of it that I found believable. <laughs> but then later on in the foreword, he says, quote, it is true that I was the first person to ever catch her Grindelwald and also that Albus Dumbledore was something more than a school teacher to me, which made me think, huh? More than a school teacher? Like, I want uh, that. I wanted to learn a little bit more about because we know we know at least what JK told us Dumbledore is interested in. Uh, what about Newt? I'm hoping it's just like paternal figure. It's oh, not that's like, definitely hey, what it is. <laughs> I had a crush on my teacher, but the problem is it's it's left in the open to speculate. And it's like, that's that's one that you don't need to have out for speculation for your audience. Like, just just say that it's a father figure. Just say it's a paternal <laughs> figure. Whatever you need it to be, like, be a little bit more clear there because there's already so much speculation happening. We don't need inappropriate relationships between teachers and students. Hogwarts has enough problems. Oh, truly. And especially when you cast Yungledore as Jude Law, like, come Who on. Who is super dreamy. Come on. <laughs> There's also a part in this foreword that made me groan out loud, which is he says that Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them working on this textbook was, quote, a labor of love, which uh, I just hate that phrase so much. It made me so upset. Would, would Passion Project be better? Oh, geez. I don't know. Maybe he could talk about how going to all of the different countries was him achieving his wanderlust <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> Just satisfied that desire. <laughs> then finally, there is a little editor's note. One of the few handwritten things in this newer edition is a little editor's note where he clarifies that this one that we are reading is the one given out to wizards. And it says, oh, in the muggle version, just reword everything so it sounds to muggles like we're talking about fictional mythical creatures. My question about that is, why is Newt leaving that note? Like, that seems like something an editor is going to do or a publisher is going to do. Like, why does Newt care enough to bother to write that note after saying everything else in this forward? It's like, do you need, like, are you not writing it? Like, I, I feel like your publisher is going to know to do that. Also, I understand why they did it for the purposes of this book reprinting was obviously to build hype for the new movies. But in what book does the author write their own foreword? Like, that never happens. Like, can you imagine reading a book where, you know, Shea Serrano releases rap and other things, and it's foreword by Shea Serrano? Like, that's not how the world works. You get the foreword usually by someone who is related to the subject, but not well-versed enough in it to write the entire book. So having the foreword by Dumbledore in the OG version makes sense. But yeah, having the author write his own foreword, what are we doing? <laughs> well, since Dumbledore's, you know, portrait was already taken for the, the original version, mm. like, I don't know if there's anyone else that he was close to that might 
might still be alive? I don't know. I mean, we're, I guess we'll have to find out in the upcoming movies that I'm not going to watch. I guess McGonagall would still be alive since she's ever present and cannot die. <laughs> there we go. Perfect. She'll write it. <laughs> so there are a few notes in this introductory section in the original version that I had to share. In the very opening page, it says it belongs to Harry, but then there's a back-and-forth writing from Ron and Hermione, where written in, Ron says, shared by Ron Weasley because his fell apart, and then Hermione tells him to buy a new one, and then Ron says, write in your own book, Hermione, and then Hermione says, wait a second, you just bought a bunch of dung bombs, why didn't you spend that money on a new book? And Ron says, dung bombs rule! Like, this stuff is so fun! I can't believe they got rid of this in the newer versions. It's disappointing, but also, like, how did Ron have the money in the first place to buy the dung bombs? His mother would be regulating any currency he's getting, and it would have for sure gone to another used textbook to deteriorate. Yep, I feel like that's a very Molly Weasley thing to do. But then on a few pages later, there's a game of Hangman where the word was Acrumantula. There's a part where Ron wrote, Harry loves Moaning Myrtle, and Harry crosses out Moaning Myrtle. There's a game of Tic-Tac-Toe, which is just... Terrible strategy on the losing team for O. And then Ron writes Chudley Cannons, and Harry underneath writes, write a decent team in my book for a change, Weasley, which is very fun. <laughs> yeah, again, I think it is something like, it's it's fun because it captures the personality of those characters, I think a little bit more than even just what we read in the books, right? You get that actual friendship on that small level. And like, to me, with friendships, it's it's great when you have these big heroic things and adventures that they have. But like we, I think we miss out sometimes on a lot of those little interactions between the two of them throughout the series. Yeah, I think some of the most fun moments in the books, and these are completely lost in the movies, is just the trio, the squad, kids being kids. That's something that does not translate to the films at all, and I think it's very fun. So to have it here in the book is great. Just, yeah, writing in textbooks, the equivalent of passing notes back and forth is what is going on here. And it's such a fun thing that definitely people do all the time in middle school. Do you think that they were passing those notes during class or like were they just like sitting around on the couch passing and they didn't want anyone else to hear their conversations? Because I feel like in class, that'd be kind of hard to get away with. The only thing I could think is there's got to be some sort of magical spell where you write on something, but it shows up on something else. Because the fact that they had a whole conversation with Ron and Hermione in Harry's book, it's not like Ron and Hermione would be passing this book back and forth (laughs) to each other in class. You bring up a good point because, I mean, we learned with Umbridge that you can write on a piece of paper with the blood from your hand. Mm. So there's maybe like a less dark version of that. (laughs) You know, what can only hope? Or, you know, it's canon. They were actually writing with their own blood. Oh, no. So... The only other note in the introduction is under Newt Scamander's full name, which has like Artemis and some other crap as a middle name, it's underlined in Ron or Harry. Someone writes, nice name. (laughs) We then move on to the introduction and there's a about this book section. And Newt Scamander says, I have visited layers, burrows, and nests across five continents, which you're a wizard. You can teleport. You know, I can understand not going to Antarctica. It's very cold. I feel like if I could just teleport, I would go there and then leave. But... I do not understand which continent gets left out here. It's a good point because they do mention specifically some of the creatures being from New Zealand and Australia. So that implies that that's happened. Some have come from Asia. That implies that's happened. Some have come from Africa. I'm trying to think. I think the only continent that's not specifically mentioned is South America. I guess so. Yeah. Which feels so strange because I feel like South America should have some truly incredible beasts. Now, Amazon rainforest, not enough space. No. Yeah. I mean, imagine like the bird personification of Carnival. It would be incredible. Like bright colors. It would be so great. There's so many fun options, but 
I guess J.K. Rowling was like, oh, South America's so far. <laughs> I can't be bothered. I can't be bothered to Wikipedia some stuff. And I, I'm not well-versed in urban legends and all of that, but I feel like South America probably has some really great ones, which inspire a lot of these beasts are just twists on urban legends. So just Google, uh, like, you're writing a book. Just do some research. It doesn't feel like it's that hard. Ugh. So Newt goes on to say that the first edition was commissioned in 1918, and he says he was making two sickles a week while working on it. Now, I used the conversion rate of sickles to pounds and then pounds to dollars, and then I did inflation. So in today's money, he was making $7 a week, which is not enough. Not enough for writing a book. I mean, maybe he had a really nice garden, and so he never had to buy groceries, and said <laughs> garden was somehow on someone else's rooftop, and that's where he lived, and he didn't have to pay rent, and so he just occasionally had to shine his shoes. <laughs> so the next section of the introduction is called, What is a Beast?, and in this section, we learn that Burdock Muldoon, which is a name, he was the chief of the wizard council. He goofed up big time. He said that beasts were two-legged, but then a bunch of goblins and related creatures showed up to protest this. So Mudloon's successor, Madame Elfrida Clagg, who we learned about in Quidditch Through the Ages, she tried to redefine it as beings and said that beings were those who could speak in the human tongue. But then there were still problems because of centaurs and other creatures. It was almost fixed in 1811 when Grogan Stump defined a being as, quote, any creature that has sufficient intelligence to understand the laws of the magical community and to bear part of the responsibility in shaping those laws. But then a footnote says that ghosts found it insensitive to be labeled as a being since they are clearly has-beens. Which so is Stump, one of the best parts, for sure. Honestly, a really good joke. I have to credit J.K. Rowling. This is a very <laughs> funny joke. <laughs> so then Stump made beast, being, and spirit divisions. One of the things that like intrigued me about this was the spirits division. And why is it called the spirits division? Because I honestly, throughout reading this entire series, assumed ghouls were like a form of a spirit, only to find out reading this textbook that that's not true. Right. And so what other spirits are there besides ghosts? So why wouldn't it just be beasts, beings, and ghosts? I feel like when J.K. Rowling tries to use, especially in these spinoff textbooks, when she tries to explain how the world works better to clear things up, she only raises more questions. Reading these books makes me wonder more because by trying to tie up some loose ends, she introduces new ones that are far more interesting. <laughs> and this is one for sure. It's just, it's so specific. And when I first read this book, this didn't seem like that big of a deal. But to now have a really long section about things being classified in particular ways and painting the people who get upset about classifications as the bad guys, like this section very much reads as, ugh, all these people wanted to be identified in particular ways and it was so annoying for everyone. Back when I read this a couple years ago, okay, sure, whatever. Now feels like an open door to uh, J.K. Rowling's <laughs> inner workings. Yeah, uh, something that I definitely didn't understand as much as a child, but reading this again as an adult, because again, first one came out how many years ago? Definitely a child back then. I just couldn't get over how pissy it was between like each individual thing and how it was represented where intelligent beasts weren't allowed to have their own say. And like, thankfully, it got to that point where like intelligent beings were allowed to classify themselves how they wanted to be classified. And I found it really interesting that certain ones like the the mer people decided to be classified as beasts and the centaurs as well. And I'm curious as to like, was that like a big F you to wizards? 
like, I just want nothing to do with what you do in your lives and you're all stupid. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting, especially because we have seen throughout the books that wizards are not necessarily the greatest and they are particularly focused with themselves and their own well-beings and they seem to have a lot of us versus them, intentional or not. So yeah, it was interesting to see some of the other beings want to be classified separately. The book even says there were some extremists that want muggles to be labeled as beasts. Then the centaurs didn't want to be beings along with vampires and hags. And is hags a class of being? I thought hag was just like a synonym for an old lady or something. So I don't, well, like, is hag something else? I was very confused about this. I actually don't, were they in? I gotta flip back towards H. I don't know if hags were even in this. So I don't think hag is mentioned in the actual A through Z portion of the textbook, but according to Google, it says a hag is a witch, especially in the form of an ugly old woman. So is a hag like a lesser witch? So yeah, hags is definitely not in here. And that's why I was like, I'm confused about it. I was like, but the hag is a witch. And I think it's just a different type of witchcraft. Maybe they don't specifically use wands or uh, maybe they specifically like live in the forests and are isolated. But like, to me, that seems like they're just a wizard. There's no difference. Yeah. It, it, again, this is one of those things that it raises more questions than it answers. And I was very confused. It also goes on to mention that acromantulas and manticores are intelligent, but they try to eat humans. And then the Sphinx only talks in riddles, but it's violent only when the answer is wrong, which I appreciate. I like that the Sphinx is nice to you <laughs> until you have proven that you are inept at solving their mind puzzles and then they want to attack you. <laughs> Could you argue then that they're actually more intelligent than wizards and should be uh, their own class above uh -huh. them? Because clearly they're so much smarter and they'll just murder you if you aren't smart enough to be their friend. And they just want to rid the world of unintelligent beings, I suppose. Exactly. So they're really just like those extremists that want to label muggles as beasts. Uh, who's to say? I do appreciate, though, in the older version, there is a note where under the subheading of this section where it says, what is a beast? Ron or Harry, one of the two, wrote, big hairy thing with too many legs. <laughs> and I feel like that is a, that's a great classification, so we move on. <laughs> the next section is called A Brief History of Muggle Awareness of Fantastic Beasts. And what's such a funny note, in the original version, the word brief is circled, oh, and what gosh. I assume is Ron writes, you liar. <laughs> <laughs> Just so good because it does take multiple pages. I oh. see, and I thought you were going to go like briefs, like an underwear joke, because ah. I can very much see Ron going that route as well in the <laughs> reading of the book. Just writing he 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 on top of it. So this section states that all of the things that Muggles consider to be mythical are real. So things like dragons, griffins, unicorns. Muggles are just very wrong on their descriptions or their identifications of them. So this is a fun workaround. I think this is the more fun version of what they tried to do in Quidditch through the ages, which is talk about how the whole witches ride on brooms thing is because Muggles saw wizards and witches playing Quidditch. I think this works better to label creatures that actually exist but normally hide or can disappear or whatever as these mythical beings that muggles now think are just lore. I agree. They did a really good job tying in like mythical creatures that we're all aware of with the Yeti, Loch Ness Monster, and like how they actually are beasts and um, kind of deep diving into that. And I think that's kind of a fun way to play into what we believe are mythical creatures. And I actually kind of wish there were more like uh, I like Greek mythology. I think it'd be kind of fun to even dive deeper into different types of beasts that it could be labeled. Oh, man. Missed opportunity. Clearly, you should have written this book instead. I think Newt Scamander did a fine job. But. <laughs> so the book says there's an international task force that does memory charms to people who've seen the Yeti. So when they come down from the mountain, they just wipe their memories, which is great. 
The book also says, quote, the world's largest Kelpie continues to evade capture in Loch Ness and appears to have developed a positive thirst for publicity. So kind of fun way to say that one of the more believed mythical creatures is one that likes the limelight. I'm very upset that they didn't get the Sasquatch in the mix. I felt like that's <laughs> just a golden opportunity wasted here. Sasquatch could be Yeti? I guess, Yeah, I guess. Maybe. Yeah. But talking specifically about Nessie, it's like, when we get later into the book and we actually start talking about these creatures and like their habits, they talk in this one as this positive light of the Loch Ness monster. But in reality, like this actual creature that like loves limelight is super murderous to humans. Oh yeah. And like actually super dangerous. And I'm like, not at all what I expected. And it's just, oh yeah, you know, like loves attention, shows up from time to time. It's the largest <laughs> one, but also they're known for drowning humans. Yeah, the book very much, and maybe this is supposed to be Newt being Newt in his not socially adept way where he doesn't realize some of the things he's saying and doing. Maybe it's part of that. If not, it's more terrifying that, yeah, a lot of the creatures, they'll just be half a sentence that's like, oh, and by the way, it eats humans all the time. Especially the dragon section. There's 10 breeds of dragon and eight of them say they love to feast on humans. <laughs> this section says that there is an office of misinformation. So when a muggle comes across a creature or if a new creature is discovered, this office meets with the muggle prime minister to come up with what lie they are going to spread. And I think that's very fun. I love that they have to have pitch meetings and discuss, okay, here's what they saw. How can we spin this? Just like <laughs> men in black trying to figure out what they're going to do after they wipe the memories. Yeah. I imagine like being the muggle minister in that situation, like finding out magic is real, being essentially powerless to all of it, but then also having to be on a marketing team on the side because <laughs> that's what it is, right? It's like a marketing team coming in, like it's your PR group kind of like, yo, this is this one real bad. How can we spin this to be good? Like throwing out ideas, pitching it out there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Loch Ness, that monster that drowned a bunch of people. It's a mythical creature and it's really cool and it's shy, but it's not real. Mythical, no one died. I'm just imagining the worst, most frustrating consultants, hashtag branding experts coming in and trying to explain to the Mughal Prime Minister how to spin it. Or, you know, their social media teams, like, do they do they create, like, accounts ah. specifically for these mythical creatures? Like, now that we're in that digital age, like, they have an actual social media team that now has to join these meetings and, like, make the, the Loch Ness Monster Twitter account. <laughs> it's TikTok account. So deep, so deep. Play it up. So the book also says that it anticipates more beasts being found, which could warrant another revision, which I guess is if they want to make another edition of this. I don't know. I guess they really thought these Fantastic Beast movies were going to kick off, which after two... Not so much. Mm -mm. The only note that Ron and Harry did in the original version is there's a section that talks about a anti-breeding law where people are not allowed to breed particular creatures. And one of them wrote, but no one's told Hagrid underneath, <laughs> which I think is very fun. Oh, poor Hagrid. <laughs> he just has so much love that he wants to give and he just chooses the wrong vessels <sighs> to deliver it to. One takeaway I had, though, from the brief history of Muggle awareness and of Fantastic Beasts was uh, it talks a lot about concealment, care, and control, right? Like, it, it, it comes off as this tone of like, hey, like, we want to care about these creatures. Like, we want to make sure it's concealed. It's all about, you know, safety of Muggle. But like, you go and turn over to the Makuza, who are literally just exterminating all of them. And there is nothing in this accord that's like, hey, you know, and if for whatever reason you can't conceal them, just murder them all. It's fine. 
everything's totally fine. And like, what? Like, how did like we go from concealment? Because it was like the 1600s, the late 1600s, this accord happened. Concealment, care and control to just straight murder these endangered species. It's fine. Wizards, man, they don't give a fuck. <laughs> Wizards may not give a fuck, but you know who does give a fuck? Me, editing Mike. Hello, everyone. How's it going? Now, past Mike, because I do give a fuck, I need to make sure that you're able to pay your bills and such. So we got to take a little bit of a break for a segment that we like to call Wingardium Adridosa. Today's episode of Potterless is brought to you by a new sponsor, Kitty Poo Club. How on brand for a Fantastic Beasts episode. Let's say hypothetically that you are Newt's commander and you've got a magical cat, a Neasel, I think. We don't get to it in this episode, but you know, you've got a cat, you need some kitty litter. What's the best situation you could do? You could get yourself hooked up with Kitty Poo Club. Kitty Poo Club is an all-in-one litter box solution designed to be convenient for you. Each month, Kitty Poo Club delivers an affordable, high-quality, recyclable litter box that is pre-filled with the litter of your choice. The boxes are leak-proof, eco-friendly, and they have a fun design for every season. When the month is up, all you gotta do is recycle the box, and Kitty Poo Club will automatically deliver a new one to you. There's no changing used litter, and there's no more cleaning the box. Now, I've never had a cat of my own, but my roommates in the past have had cats. I've seen Kelly's family deal with cats. The litter box situation does not seem very fun. I love the concept of this. Not having to change it, and then you just recycle stuff? This sounds phenomenal. You can customize your order based on how many cats you have and what type of litter they prefer. Kitty Poo Club has a no-risk guarantee, and you can easily customize or cancel your membership at any time. And right now, Kitty Poo Club is offering Potterless listeners 20% off your first order when you set up auto-ship by going to kittypooclub.com and entering promo code Potterless. Just go to kittypooclub.com and enter the promo code Potterless, and you will get 20% off when you set up AutoShip. That's kittypooclub.com. Don't forget to use that promo code Potterless to check out. You'll get 20% off when you set up AutoShip, and you can have a wonderful, easy-to-use, clean cat situation for your home of magical beasts today. And now you'll hear words from a few sponsors who make it feasible for me to be a full-time podcaster. Some of these ads will be read by me, others of them won't. The ones that aren't are inserted locally, so if you live internationally, don't be surprised if you hear an ad in your country's native language. And once those ads are complete, we'll get back to this episode of Potterless. So now we get on to the rest of this book, which is just an A through Z list of all of the beasts. And this section is opened with the Ministry of Magic classifications. Now, they have five different classifications, and they are scale of 1x to 5x, with 5 being the most intense. So at the top, 5x, it says, known wizard killer, impossible to train or domesticate. And the Ron slash Harry note says, or anything Hagrid likes, which is a great joke. <laughs> so solid. I love them dunking on Hagrid because it definitely is a dunking with love thing, but these are pretty great jokes from the kids. Oh, and it's so true because it's what are the two main creatures in the books that like he like has like these deep relationships with, right? It's an acromantula, super dangerous, deadly, and a dragon. And it's considered the second most dangerous of the dragons. Mm -hmm. Hagrid is very much attracted to danger. Like, I think that's just his go-to. He wants to care for those that he thinks are precious. And for whatever reason to him, things that can murder you are precious. Yeah, he loves a challenge. Even Buckbeak as a hippogriff is one that requires skill. He just loves being challenged by his creatures. Yeah, but also like talking specifically about the classifications, I think they're trash. Okay, good. Yes, I would love your insight here because they are bananas. They, they're terrible. They make no sense. They're super vague. And like when you actually get into some of these beasts, you're like, 
how is this a three and this one was a four? Like mm-hmm. none of it makes sense, like how they were actually classified. And then also the descriptions, it's like five, known wizard killer, but also impossible to train or domesticate. And it's like, but dragons are a five. And yeah, they are definitely known wizard killers, but we know of one in Gringotts Bank that was trained. It wasn't trained super well in any capacity of like, yeah, this is a pet, but it was trained. So like, does that classification even make sense? Because I feel like technically anything can be trained and it doesn't need to be in there. Just drop it. Known wizard killer. Most dangerous. Yeah, that's all you need. Charlie Weasley's literal job is dragon tamer. (laughs) If dragons couldn't be tamed, he wouldn't have a job. Exactly. Which also is why Charlie is actually one of the biggest badasses of the Weasleys is because at the end of the day, I can't imagine dealing with one dragon and he has multiple. Yeah. And then we, we drop down to four where it's like dangerous, requires specialist knowledge and skilled wizards may handle. It's like, that's also so vague. Like, what type of skill do you need? Like, is it specific thing? Like, is there licensing involved? What sort of knowledge? Why are they dangerous? Like, all sorts of things can be dangerous. Dogs, literally domestic dogs can be very dangerous. Should dogs who can kill people be classified as a five? Yeah, it's also just such an inconsistent system because as we go down to three, it says competent wizard should cope. So this has nothing to do with how dangerous the creature is. It just says that a competent wizard should be able to handle this. And what gets confusing with the ratings is that some of them, you can see getting a 3X or a 4X because of how dangerous it is. But then other ones get a 3X or a 4X just because they can turn invisible, for example, and it's hard for a wizard to find, so it takes more skill, but it's not necessarily dangerous, so why is it a 4X? And then you get down to 2X, where it says harmless may be domesticated, but one of the ones that's 3X is a Krupp, which is a wizard dog, which the whole two-paragraph description talks about how to domesticate them, but there are 3X, which is above the may be domesticated classification. My actual theory behind that the Krupp and then a lot of the other ones that got threes is that a three somehow magically when we go through this, a lot of the threes are very capable of either killing muggles or hating muggles. Like Krupps apparently are super aggressive against muggles. So it's like, it's also, I think, shitting on muggles. It's saying that like muggles are actually less than wizards. Like, yeah, yeah, it can kill a muggle. It's a three. It's whatever. Muggles are stupid. I don't care. It's a three. Oh, but wizards, like that's the differentiator between death, between a three and a five is like, can it kill a muggle? Can it kill a wizard? Yeah, maybe that's why it's so blasé about the creatures that eat humans, because it's just understood that it means, oh, just muggle humans, (laughs) not humans that matter. And so I actually got really sad about this because I'm like, no, Newt, you're such a good person. Why would you feel? I was like, oh, wait, no, Ministry of Magic. Never mind. It's their classifications. This makes total sense. Yep, yep, yep. He did not write this portion. And then to round it off, which makes absolutely no sense at all, a 1X is called boring. That is not on this scale. And boring is not an objective term by any means. You could find some of these creatures boring. Also, is Newt going to give anything a 1X? He loves creatures. Come on. <laughs> exactly. What's the difference between a one and a two, depending on it, like your interpretation? I don't think like for Hagrid, anything below a four is a one. Yeah. And the other thing that makes no sense is that they never explain directly why some creatures have the rating that they do. And I think that could have been helpful for some of the things that are a 3X or a 4X that don't seem as dangerous as other ones. You know, when you get a 5X, it's very obvious. You don't have to say the Acromantula is a 5X because it, you know, can kill people and is venomous and can talk, et cetera, et cetera. But when you see things like the Krupp that's 3X and they don't necessarily say it, you have to think further about it like you did outside of the text. It's just you would think that they would at least talk about these classifications at all, but they mention them once at the top. 
they put them next to the beasts, and then that's it. And they don't ever explain, oh, this got a four because of this, or this is only a two because of this. They're just there. And you gotta just infer. And why that matters is like, this is a textbook for first-year students. Yeah. <laughs> it's for 11-year-olds. And it's like, if I'm out in the wild, hanging outside of like Hogwarts castle, and like some creature comes up to me, I'm gonna open up this book and be like, oh, okay, it's a 2X. Or, oh, okay, it's a 3X. And there's like no useful information of how to handle that situation. There's a lot of descriptions of what color the eggs are for each of the creatures. And I don't know that that is the most helpful in all cases, but they love to give that detail in this book. Yeah, I think outside of, I think there was one creature specifically because their eggs cause fires. It was relevant. Yep. But like for the most part, especially when dealing with animals, if you're near a nest... And there's an egg in there or there's a cub or whatever. Run, run, there's a run, baby. run, run. <laughs> just get out. Like, you don't, you, the, the problem isn't like, oh, whose nest is this? It's just like, <laughs> leave. Because it doesn't matter how harmless the animal is. You don't want to mess with it when there's babies around. Like, even like down in Texas, the cra- the grackles, crackles, grackles. I don't know. I lived in Texas for 10 years and I haven't heard about this. And now I'm terrified. <laughs> okay. They're the, if you go to HEB uh-huh. in some parts of the year, they're the blackbirds that are everywhere. Oh, okay. Those things, they're not big by any means, but they're very protective of their nests and they are nasty, but they're like a harmless bird for the most part. But like, they'll still attack you if you get near their young. And it's like, just a general rule of thumb. We don't need to know about the nests. Tell us more about like why this animal is actually dangerous because like even a harmless bird is going to attack you if you're in their nest. Yeah, it feels like this book could have been more fun, but then also more helpful for first year students if it was a bit more hands on and more educational. This is very much a here are all of the beasts and here's some fun facts about a lot of them, which I get makes sense for what this book is in the real world, which is for Harry Potter fans. I want to learn more. But if you're trying to be in the canon of it, you would think there would be a section such as general tips for what to do if you see a beast. Things that are a bit more educational rather than just a Wikipedia laundry list of summaries. You know, as someone with a toddler who reads a lot of books geared towards two-year-olds, like this actually almost fits the illustrated version because it's like, Here's a pretty picture of a thing, and here's a couple words. Like, they could have just made it rhyme, throw in a couple different words here and there, <laughs> and, like, it would have been great as a little book for my two-year-old, because it's, like, otherwise useless. Oh, man. I can't think of a better diss for J.K. Rowling is that her book should have been geared towards two-year-olds. So let's move on to the actual A through Z of the Fantastic Beasts, the first of which is the Acromantula, which is given a 5X rating, understandably, but in the original version, I'm assuming Ron added nine X's to it, which is so funny. <laughs> I mean, that's a more realistic version. Yeah, honestly, the, the one through five is not enough. They need to have a higher rating scale because some of the things that get five are way scarier than other things that get five. Yeah, this this is actually one of the ones that terrifies me the most in this book. And I would least want to come across because I think they also would hunt and eat humans. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. So the Acromantula, when I did the live show in LeakyCon, I gave this the yearbook superlative of most likely to take over the world Planet of the Apes style. <laughs> so it is a giant eight-eyed spider capable of human speech, which is terrifying. It has a 15-foot leg span, terrifying. Poisonous secretions, terrifying. Dome-shaped webs, not a fan. Near human intelligence, which that is, that's like what really separates it from, I think, every other beast. Yep is that it's not just big and scary and strong and poisonous, but the fact that it has near human intelligence, woof. That's devastating. Yeah, no thanks. I don't want to be anywhere near it. And like, even when they come out, 
Aren't they, I, I think it says in here how big they are. It's like a foot large, like a foot long. So what I'm looking at in the textbook, it doesn't say exactly how big the babies are, but it says that the eggs are as large as beach balls. So that's pretty big. Yeah, so I mean, a beach ball is about a foot. So we, we can argue that at birth, they are a foot. That's a big note for me. <laughs> that's bigger <laughs> than like every other spider as an adult. Oh, terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Uh, Finally, the note at the very end of this section says, rumors of a colony in Scotland are unconfirmed. And in the first edition, there's a written note that says, confirmed <laughs> by Harry Potter and Ron Weasley. Okay, I appreciate that. That was the one note I had on this page was like the rumor being 100% about Hagrid starting said colony. And like speaking from like a standpoint of like them being moved in the Forbidden Forest, like this is like an apex predator that you just added to an environment. Like this would have ruined that entire force, especially with how many there were like in that scene, like there's no way this would have worked out because like of how much they would need to eat. Like that force would have been decimated, centaurs included. Mm -hmm. I guess Hagrid thought it was okay because he convinced uh, Aragog to be a nice guy. Yeah, only would murder everyone but Hagrid. So it's fine. Yeah, it's pretty good. Better than all the other acromantulas who just want to murder everyone, I guess. Yeah, see what a charming fellow. <laughs> what a nice spider. So the next one is the Ashwinder, which is a triple X. It says it is created when a magical fire, and a magical fire is one that uses flu powder, when a magical fire is left too long. So I love that now in the magical world, not only is leaving a fire too long dangerous, but it's also dangerous because it will create a magical beast. Yep, a magical beast that will then also light your home on fire. Yep, so a gray serpent with red eyes emerges. It leaves behind a trail of ash. It only lives for an hour, but then it seeks out a dark place to lay eggs that burst into flames if they are not found in time and frozen with some sort of charm. So this is just the scariest version of forest fires, and I feel like Smokey the Bear in the wizarding world is just <laughs> so stressed out. Just completely stressed. Just patches of hair gone from the stress. The poor Smokey. Only you can prevent forest fires, but who can even do this? I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and so speaking of this, like one of the ways to get into the Ministry of Magic is by the Flu Network. So they have fires with flu powder going at all times, right? Oh all day. my gosh. So like, don't they have an infestation? Like, do they have a team specifically that just like hangs out in the lobby and like catches them as they get out to stop them from laying eggs or do they collect them and then freeze them and like sell them? Like, are they controlled? And like in the scene in what was it? The fifth movie? Fifth movie, yeah. Yeah, in the fifth movie, those fires are still going when literally no one else is at the Ministry of Magic. Ooh. How has it not burned down? Yeah, I guess they would just have to have an on-staff snake exterminator that just waits for the Ashwinders to emerge and then captures them. Just constant animal control patrolling. <laughs> do you think it's like, you know, the the people who are like in Parks and Rec, the least competent human beings who do animal control? Is that like who, <laughs> who we have like monitoring this situation? Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. I really wouldn't be surprised. The ministry is so poorly run. If I actually wanted more Harry Potter spinoff stuff to happen, a Parks and Rec version of the Ministry of Magic <laughs> with, you know, Arthur Weasley as Leslie Nope. Gosh, that would be so fun. Oh, my gosh. Because <laughs> he does run his own department by the end of it. Like, yeah. And it's a department that nobody cares about, the Muggle <laughs> Department, which really works well for the Parks and Rec Department. There are so many better things we can be doing than the Fantastic Beast film franchise. So many things. Infinitely better things. <laughs> I'm ready for that to become a Netflix series somehow. We'll have to make it happen and then make sure zero dollars go to J.K. Rowling. Perfect. Love this plan. <laughs> so the next beast is the Augury, which I identified in the Leaky Con show as most likely to appeal to goth middle schoolers. 
Now, if anyone has read Cursed Child, you will be familiar with the augury. For spoiler purposes, I won't say why, but if you know Cursed Child, you know. And you also know that that place sucked. But it is a thin, mournful-looking, underfed, my favorite word, greenish-black bird. And it is shy. It nests in bramble and thorn in a tear-shaped nest, which is just the most extra. Not only is it spiky, made out of brambles and thorn, but it specifically makes the nest in the shape of a tear. I feel like they also probably listen to Yellow Card. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just constant. The Sound of Silence by Art and Garfunkel is just on loop. It says that they have a low and throbbing cry that originally was thought to foretell death, but later on people realized that they just sing at the approach of rain. So I do love that it is something that they thought was this big omen, but instead they're just accidental weather people. I tried to imagine what this would sound like, and I wish it was something that was in in the films because it's supposed to be really sad and depressing. And so like my interpretation of what that would sound like is a whale sound, but somehow above water. Ooh, yeah, that could be nice and sad. But again, I also just imagined it could just be a bird version of, hello, darkness, my old friend. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the instrumental, but in bird version. (laughs) That explains the troubles that Yurik had then, if that was all that (laughs) he was hearing from 50 sources. (laughs) So the next one is the Basilisk. This is a 5X rating. I identified this one as the most likely to fail biology class because... The Basilisk was first recorded by Herpo the Fowl. And what a name. I kind of want to learn more about Herpo the Fowl than I do about Newt's commander. But I also, the Fantastic Beast movies are just not about Newt, which is really frustrating. They are barely about Fantastic Beasts or where to find them. So I feel like I owe Newt a bit of apology when I hate on the film so much because it's not his fault. These movies are not about him. I think they'd be way more interesting if it was just him finding beasts. But Herpo the Fowl discovered the basilisk by doing a great deal of research and finding that if you hatch a chicken egg under a toad, it births a basilisk, which makes, and this is true, no sense. It makes no sense. And it's also super easy to do. And if you're talking about controlling, it's like, I could right now go to the park. There are toads here in Minnesota. I can go get a toad. My neighbors have chickens. I can go get an egg. And like, I can make it happen where I put it in a box. And that's the only place the toad can be. I can make a basilisk. There is no way it should be that easy, especially because this is by far one of the most dangerous creatures. Right. Not even close. Like you can't even look at it without dying. And you're telling me that Voldemort and the Death Eaters who have a basilisk chilling in the Chamber of Secrets, they know how powerful it is. If it's so easy to make a basilisk, you're not going to have an army of basilisks when you attack Hogwarts Castle. What are you doing? Get a bunch of toads, go to the store, attack with 50 basilisks. Why not? And it's like, and I get it. Like if, for instance, Voldemort, who is a parcel mouth, wasn't leading this fight because then, yeah, they'd all probably just die because they're dealing with a very dangerous snake. But like your leader can control the basilisk. Like this should be used. Like I'm sure you could have come up with some sort of blinders that like you make sure that like they can't see you from a certain angle, like similar to like with horses, they have the little blinders on. So they don't get freaked out by things like you could totally do that with the basilisk and just have them go forward into the castle. Super deadly. But like I have so many other gripes with the basilisk. It can live for like 900 years, apparently, if it has a sufficient food source. What was keeping the basilisk alive underneath Hogwarts? Like they didn't even have the the plumbing for how long? So like, did it just sleep for 400 years and somehow it sustained itself? Just took a big old nap. What What sustained it? It shouldn't have been alive that long, so it shouldn't have even been in the Chamber of Secrets alive in the first place. And then also, the movie depiction of the basilisk 
is atrocious. Oh, it's so it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. First off, doesn't look anything like it should. It looks more like a dragon than a snake. Mm-hmm. Terrible. And then its color is not even emerald green. It's not even close to the right color. Like, how do you miss that detail and get something so critical to the film so wrong? We get into the the fangs. Like, I don't know if you know, it was like a dragon's mouth. It had like multiple teeth, more like a dragon. That is not how a snake's mouth works. No, yeah, it had a full row of teeth. I I could go on for days with how much I can't stand (laughs) the representation of a basilisk in the film and then just how like mundanely stupid it is to create. It's ridiculous. It's so silly to me. The whole creation of it just made me think of that scene in the SpongeBob episode where SpongeBob and Patrick have the clam that they're walking around in a little baby carriage and it walks by the fish and they have the thought bubble that says sponge plus starfish equals clam question mark. (laughs) That was my thought of toad plus egg equals giant snake that poisons people question mark and freezes them with its eyes. And the final note that the textbook has is it says there are no recorded sightings of basil for 400 years, which, again, the fact that it's so easy to make makes no sense at all. You would think people would be breeding these things like hotcakes, but Ron slash Harry wrote underneath, that's what you think. (laughs) Perfect. It's the best way to end it, and I think it's the best way to end this first episode of Potterless about the Fantastic Beasts and where to find them book. So, Caleb, thank you so much for joining on lending expertise, venting with me about the basilisk situation. If people want to find you doing stuff, on the internet, or I guess on the ultimate Frisbee field slash pitch, uh, where can they do so? Uh, You can just find me on most uh, social media platforms as at Caleb Denicor. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining on. Listeners, thank you so much. Thank you for for having me. Oh, of course. Yeah, it was great. I'm glad I get to make this happen. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, as they say in the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, as they round up snakes from the hallways of the Ministry of Magic, Wizard on! Hey, please vote! If you live anywhere in the world, but especially if you live in America and you're listening to this before the general election on November 3rd, 2020, figure out your voting situation. It's probably too late to register or request an absentee ballot at this point, so you should go to vote.gov, figure out where you can drop off your ballot if you have an absentee ballot, or mail it in if you've got it, or you can find out where you can go to vote in person, where you are registered to vote. You should do early voting if you can. If you've got the ballot, send it in, drop it off, do whatever you can. Go to vote.gov to figure out what you need to do. This is a very important election. And it's very important that you vote for people that are going to make things better and keep people's hearts in mind. I'm just going to be straight up. I'm voting for Joe Biden. I'm not happy about it. I don't think he's great. But the alternative is absolutely terrible. And it's only gotten worse over these four years. And I only think it's going to get worse from here. So that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm not happy about voting for Joe, but I can't vote for the other guy because just I, nope so if you want to figure out what you need to do and please 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 do please vote go to vote.gov today Potterless is created by Mick Schubert it is hosted by Mick Schubert it is edited by Mick Schubert it is produced by Mick Schubert as well as Vicky Garcia Christine Aaron Johnson Klaus Lopu Marchismo Samantha Rose Juan Sanfilu Rosemary Dodge Marie Lisa C. Keen Romina Rivadinier Audra Eleanor Curlin Nikita Power Rachel Guthrie Zachary Pulido Alex Consilver John Cocker Noel Basile Claire Spencer Rory Collier Veronica Bartova Lada Bartova Noah Tracy Toya Colleen Jennifer Mark Lou Justin Montero Jacob Parrish Maya Gray Mark Body Polly Burge Zena Rosnowski Harlan Haskins Noelia Nikki Harris Kine Amanda Alford Kafir Shaltiel Sarah Shetter Marta Morrison Maya Flor 
Sake, Georgia Davis, Sky Lily, Adele Ryan, Professor Threat, Ellie House, Kovchova, Michael David, Yordi, Kelly Otilio, Kerry Crumpler, Connie Bienkowski, Jen Went, Nedry OS, Will Huser, Marco Cepeda, Marie Rieger, Ashton Gabrielson, Brittany Gutierrez, Fail on the Meadows Family, Ginny from the Block, Heather Langeal, Kevin Stewart, Laurie McDonald, Jarls Fivin, Peter McGrath, Janin Rose, Dab, Callahan and Darius, Leah Reed, Melissa Rab, Bella Barlack, Melanie Demi, Becca Spry, Reese Dignan, Adam Graham, Joseph Torp, Lily's Mom, Madison, Don't Call Me an Infidora, Sabrina Balsiger, Sophia Loves Pigs, Farzan Sharabat, Melanie Zulhreif, Matt Barger, Okamahime, Bony Pony, Kelsey Gillespie, Rike Mangor Jensen, Taylor Payne, Megan Moon, Riley Kitas, Laurel Happy, Ross Ann Batamana, Erica Butler, Miranda, Landon Schwausch, Kendra Hertz, Natanya Page, Yogan Shanley, Darcy Alexandra Harrison, Sandra Rose, Craig McRoberts, Leor Nachum, Demi Lynn, Michelle Spurgeon, Calista Delano, Jennifer Terzi, and Henrique Wolf, Jeremy Elmore, Delkis, Katrina Smith, Jericho Law, Casey Canales, Megan Stempen, Zat, Jack Skitzes, Sophia Lyon, Dane Nemcher, Kirsty, Robin Garcia, Chick Parm, Mermaid Ender, Daddy Kinzelaria, Vicentin, Lori, Gregory Hughes, The Real Stan Chun, Pike, Caw Caw, Mother Feathers, Nina Jazalik, Ribbon Monstrosity, Brittany Harper, Ashley Summers, Your Friendly Neighborhood, Ravenclaw, Gavin Miller, Jack Parr, Serenity, Allen, Emily Quinlan, Haley Hastings, Sabrina Casanova, Sean Allen, Jenny Browers, Laura, Mazel Tov, Hila, Eileen Gazesh, Annette Pipitone, Kirsten R. Cunningham, Hufflepuff alumni, Brett Clausen, Hunter Gordon, Mary Price, Artemis, Trans People or People, Samantha McNamara, Steamed Nuggets, and Can't I Potter? Web design by Kelly Schubert, and the music is by Bettina Kambamanas. If you want to find us on social media, you can at facebook.com slash potterless, twitter.com slash potterless pod, instagram.com slash potterless podcast, and reddit.com slash r slash potterless. For any and all information about the show, you can go to potterlesspodcast.com. Bonus content lives at patreon.com slash potterless, and merch lives at potterlesspodcast.com slash merch. If you want to tell someone about the show, you reach out directly saying, hey, I think you would like this show, or you just leave a rating and review online. Those really help. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, as they say in the wizarding world of Harry Potter, wizard on!